the financing that wraps up projects entirely is a construction loan. And, and in order to close a construction loan, you need um, you need to sort of work backwards. To close a construction loan, you need a building permit um, and a GMP. Mm -hmm. In order to have both of those two things, you need to have full CDs. And in order to have full CDs, you need to know like the full engineering of where that's going to go. So working backwards, like that's like the time that it takes, plus like all the money that it takes to get there. Until right. you get to that point where you have like um, a GMP and the building permit, a bank you may have a, a signed agreement with the bank, but like they have no obligation to fund. I mean, and you have to raise the money and you have to raise the equity, but those two things from the project perspective is what you have to do. So I mainly say like, we start with that and how quickly can we get there? Mm -hmm. And the big thing is gonna be is during the due diligence time, can I get to that stage? If not, then it means either you're closing on the land with equity mm -hmm. or you're closing on the land with, you know, a, um, a low leverage, um, a low leverage land loan. So that's the mm -hmm. big divide um, in projects is how much time you're going to get. And if you aren't going to get enough time to finish all those approvals, then it doesn't matter that much uh, the difference between like whether you have um, uh, your architectural's 65% done or 20% done. Welcome to the Placemaking Podcast. Podcast. The show geared at helping real estate developers learn and understand important aspects of the development process while improving communities one at a time. Each week, we'll discuss major facets of the real estate development process with industry professionals. Now, here's your host, Matthew Lowe's. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode number 57 of the Placemaking Podcast. Can't wait to share this next conversation with all of you here today. Now, today I have a special guest on the show, Bobby Fion, partner of Form Developers. Bobby has been involved in startup companies for nearly his entire career. He left graduate school to start his previous company, Cross Properties, with three other partners in the basement of a seminary in 2011. He's worn just about every hat in real estate from finance, capital markets, fundraising, leasing, late night maintenance, and semi-professional architect, to name a few. At Cross, he was the partner in charge of the development and design team, was responsible for every project from empty lot to stabilized building. Now in 2019, he left his day-to-day -day operations at Cross to co-found Taylorbird, construction technology company and form developers. Through form, he has invested in half a dozen real estate deals and real estate technology startups and has advised many younger developers along the way. Now, form's core belief is that real estate investments are best made through patient capital with aligned interest. Their strategic focus is on multifamily and mixed-use ground-up development. Now, this episode, we covered a lot of ground. We looked at the ways Bobby is able to balance the risk-reward ratio on some of these tough projects that create a real barrier to entry for other, other developers. His definition of placemaking and how it can be created through floor plan curation, among other things. And the keys to identifying a great floor plan mix on your next multifamily development. There's loads of great information in this episode, and I greatly appreciate Bobby for taking the time out of his extremely busy, busy schedule to discuss this topic of creating heavy value-add development opportunities 
with me today. As always, if you've enjoyed the show, please subscribe to the show and share with your friends in this real estate industry. There'll be more exciting conversations on the shows to come. So without further ado, let's start the show. Hey, welcome to the show, Bobby. Great to be here, Matt. Thank you so much for having me. I'm honored to have you on the show. Uh, I know you've been on a couple other shows. I know Chris Powers, a friend of mine, uh, you've been on his show before, but I want to take a slightly different twist. And um, if you're ready, I'd like to just jump right in. That sounds great. All right. So let's let's get a little bit about your background starting out, Bobby, and then, and then we'll kind of transition that into form and uh, we'll just keep going from there. Perfect. Perfect. Well, um, where to begin? Well, um, I was born in Boston. Um, okay. And uh, my dad was a my dad was a mechanical engineering professor, and we moved around the country um, every two to four years. So um, he was at MIT, and then we were at Michigan, and then we moved to the Bay Area, Phoenix for a bit, um, South Jersey, um, and 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 a few other spots. But I grew uh, up moving around the country. I was actually homeschooled, K through twelve. Um, Actually, that's not true. I went to kinder, I went to public kindergarten. <laughs> I was homeschooled first grade through 12th grade. Um, and uh, initially, I initially went to school at the University of Southern California in Los Angeles, um, where I studied um, history and film because I had the good fortune to get a scholarship. So I thought, yeah, I could study whatever I wanted. And I went into a um, an intro to film class and it sounded fun. So I thought, great, <laughs> I'll watch movies and read history books for the next few years. Um, after three years, um, so after my junior year, um, I got a, an internship and realized that I did not want to work um, in the movie industry. <laughs> um, and I also had, um, which, which, I, which I've described a little bit on Twitter, um, I also had a, um, a reconciliation with my parents. Um, okay. I had previously like lost, most, lost that relationship almost entirely, um, but by junior year, we ended up um, reconciling. So um, I ended up transferring to Penn and then studied um, economics. Okay. Um, so after um, where I met my wife, um, my super senior year. So that was, uh, that was great. Um, <laughs> let's see. Perfect timing. It was perfect timing. It was God's <laughs> timing. Um, and then let's see, I worked, I worked in consulting for a teeny bit um, and then went back to school um, to study um, math. Um, okay just because I thought I wanted to go work for like a, a quant heavy hedge fund or an investment bank or something like that. And after um, the first year uh, back at school, um, I ran into a friend from undergrad from Penn and we, we each kind of exchanged what we were doing. And he said that he and, few, and two other guys uh, were starting a real estate development company in the basement of a seminary that they were trying to buy and convert into apartments. Wow. So I was intrigued and I started like I was helping out maybe like once a week with just like um, some underwriting stuff, since that was, you know, my, my background. Right. Um, within a few weeks, I was there every day. And by the end of the summer, that's what I wanted to do. So um, those, those three guys ended up becoming my partners. And the company that we built was called um, Cross Properties from 20, and that was in 2011. Um, so that was the beginning. Um, we, you know, uh, were at the, we were at the end of like the global financial crisis. And there were, you know, we're looking for deals like everyone else. So, I mean, the first deals that we got 
um, were ones where you could put deals under agreement for soft deposit and then just try and find equity uh, to close them. So I think we probably put um, half a dozen deals under agreement before we oh, wow. fully closed the first one. Um, we were just trading you know, sweat equity for um, uh, to do some deals. Um, so right. uh, two of my uh, two of my you know eventual partners were uh, a little bit a little bit older, a little more experienced, and myself and and my other friend from school were the uh, I guess like the young, smart, like hotshot people who could who could show a well um, in um, financy type meetings and things like that. So right. that's that's how I got started. Um, and uh, I, I would also say that um, by the end of that first summer, the main thing that convinced me to do real estate um, was not the real estate specifically. It was um, the other guys. I remember okay. thinking like, um, if I do this and I fail um, and I lose all my money and my time, uh, it's still worth failing to work with um, good people. Wow. Um, and I was fortunate at that time and that I was married and my wife's a nurse. And so she was you know, able to pay bills. Um, and um, I didn't have school debt and things like that. So I could take some of those types of risks. Um, but that's how I got into the business. Wow. Yeah, I was going to ask you, you know, you, you, you started out in film and then you kind of transitioned there to economics. And yep. it just so real estate was never in the picture, even even before college. And no, no. No, no, well, real estate was never, um, no. And even then when I got started into it, it was mainly that um, I appreciated it as an asset. I thought I could figure it out. But before getting involved in real estate, I never took a single class. Although, you know, Wharton has plenty of great real estate classes. I didn't take a single one. I didn't take any urban policy classes. Um, I was just, you know, uh, by, by the time I went to Penn, I was just taking the classes that I needed to take in order to like actually finish school. Um, so all the electives that I ended up taking were in, you know, um, the films of Alfred Hitchcock and stuff like that. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. And, and you should have aced those, right? <laughs> well, sure. no, that's that's great. Okay, so uh, you didn't really have any influence from parents or anything about real estate. You just on real of... estate, no, no, no. Wow. no I I came to it just like I said, mainly because I liked the guys, and also um, I, I from the very beginning. I was motivated by the idea that real estate is transformational, right? So the first mm -hmm. few projects we were working at or trying to do were um, some large scale conversions and partly due to my faith, but partly because I think it's just apparent to anyone who can like touch and feel real assets, like the idea of saying like, this is something and we have a vision to make it like better, new, transformative, like uh, redeem, rebirth. Like these are really cool, big, awesome human ideas. And I was caught up in those, um, like, like, I think like many other people. So, yeah. uh, it's a, it's a, it's a, a good asset. It was fun to work on people. And, and it felt like a problem that was worthy of like devoting, you know, your life to trying to fix. So, wow. um, yeah. Wow. So from that, so that first project where you're in the basement mm -hmm. of the seminary, just curious, yep. how did that, uh, how did that work out? that first project well some some so that project actually wasn't even the first thing we did that was just when we okay. kind of like had under agreement because development takes a really long sure. uh, time and, and things hit at different points so uh, i mean there were a lot of things that went well and a lot of things that didn't because um as a younger newer developer um or i guess newer developed set of newer developers um 
there were things that we knew and things that we didn't. Mm -hmm. So we kind of like trudged along and um, had capital partners um, and other partners who were willing to kind of like help us like get deals done. So I think if there was something that was really helpful for that initial period of time, it was that we weren't too proud to not try and do a deal with someone else. Okay. Um, so I think when you're starting, um, you can either try and do a deal on your own um, or you can try and do a deal with other people. And so we ended up choosing the other one um, for, for better and for worse. Uh, it worked out in that we were able to complete those projects and get them done, which is uh, the majority of what, of, of what difficulty in development is. Um, yeah. So that's, yeah, that's what we did. Yeah. Yeah. That, I, I was curious to see if, so these guys had never done any true projects before, before you got together or was this? Um, as a company, no. Um, but in, in previous professions, um, they had just um, not as the, uh, not as a sole principle. So kind of gotcha. coming out of it, like two people who, who knew how projects worked. Right. Um, and then, you know, we kind of, uh, you know, put kind of the all-star team together, okay. uh, mixing and matching different different skill sets. Um, so there was, you know, uh, limitless energy, um, willingness to roll fees into projects and just, you know, kind of roll our sleeves up and, and get projects done. So that was the thing we shared. And we shared the common goal of like getting projects done. And, you know, one of them was a lawyer, one of them was in, in capital markets. And um, we just, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm grateful for my partnership with those guys. It was, it was terrific. Yeah. That sounds like a fun experience, you know, just yep. starting out when you, um, when you're all kind of got that common mission, that common goal to come yes. together and build something, that's that's pretty exciting stuff. So from that, the humble beginnings here with the four of you, or is it yep. three or four? Sorry. A four total. Four, four total. total. And I mean, there was, so <laughs> the beginning of any company, there's like a really weird, like Tim, on when things start, when they don't, right, right. there people came in and out, I'd say. So eventually what ended up being was there ended up being, um, for people who are okay. quote unquote there from the beginning, because some people can't make it for one reason or another, which is understandable. Yeah. But eventually, there ended up being four of us. Okay, so from those humble beginnings, kind of transition mm -hmm. that to where we're at now, or where you're at sure. right now. Sure. So um, we did a few. Um, let's see. So the first like real large scale project that we worked on was called sixteen sixteen Walnut. That was a a gut renovation conversion of a 250,000 square foot office building um, that's located in, in, in downtown Philadelphia, a, a block or so off, off Rittenhouse Square. Um, so we put that building under agreement and then we're able to cobble together a partnership with another developer and then a large um, okay. private equity firm um, and, get, and get that project done. Um, it was a, an enormous undertaking um, and we had us, and in executing the project, we ended up being tasked with like, I guess as part of the overall partnership, tasked with different parts of executing it, but collectively um, we got that project done in about um, three and a half years, which is pretty neat. So it's that incredible. project um, gave us sort of the credibility to then continue to do more projects, um, especially even when we were partway through. So that was the first one that um, really sort of established that we were starting, we were hungry and that we were ambitious um, mm -hmm. to try and do more projects. Um, it was a, it was a beautiful project in my opinion it's still um the best um or one of the best renovation projects done um in philadelphia there are some other great ones too but i'm obviously impartial <laughs> and um 
250,000 square feet, you said? 250,000 square feet of office. Um, and we converted it into 206 apartments and um, about 40,000 square feet of retail. Um, some, uh, there was some, it was a cardio tenant in the basement, um, a, rest, uh, a restaurant, a, a pizzeria, um, a bank, a Santander bank and a theory. Oh, wow. um, and then uh, an architect's office and then apartments above. So um, it, was a, it was a beautiful old building, uh, built in 1929, Art Deco. Um, it was a lot of fun and it was very difficult. Yeah. Did the, you, just curious, did you use historic tax credits? On, on we that did, one? we okay. did. Um, so so his, the historic tax credits enabled us to um, get back, you know, uh, the, the rough calculation for historic tax credits ends up being that um, you get about 25 cents on the dollar of your hard of your hard costs spent right. um, uh, back in the form of a tax credit, which you can then sell or have someone invest into that. Um, and we, we did that. The, the downside of getting historic tax credits is that um, the National Park Service has purview both on the inside and the outside of the building. So mm -hmm. on the outside, that usually means um, you have to replace the windows with um, similar materials. You can't um, replace metal for vinyl um, or wood for vinyl. Um, mm -hmm. You're stuck with basically the original materials um, right. and, and similar profile. So it makes uh, a lot of exterior work um, and uh, uh, masonry um, more expensive than, than most other jobs. And then the other thing which makes um, uh, historic renovations in, renovations in general and historic renovations particularly uh, problematic uh, if it doesn't check the right boxes is that um, on the inside, uh, the uh, feds have purview over where your hallways and units can and can't go. So oh, wow. um, in, in this particular unit or in this particular building, the floor plate um, for the bulk of the building, which is like, uh, it was a, a wedding cake design, mm -hmm. um, but for the bulk of the building was a fairly efficient size, double loaded corridor um, and the existing hallway already ran through the middle of the building. So uh, there wasn't much that we had to change. And uh, the building had been uh, renovated for different uh, office tenants a number of times over the years. So there wasn't that much historic fabric to protect right. other than the elevator lobbies. So um, we, we were able to do that um, convert one of the um, elevator entrances into a, a unit door entrance, a, a unit door, um, but it was a fairly straightforward um, building layout. Again, yeah. I'm sure the architects had a much harder time of it than I described, <laughs> um, but I, I'd still say that uh, for historic renovations, it was uh, more straightforward than many. Okay. Um, so okay. then, and then, and then, and then we started doing uh, projects outside the city. Um, there was another historic renovation project um, that was in the suburbs. That was the conversion of the seminary. Um, and then after that, we started doing a few other projects in that same um, neighborhood of um, uh, ground up multifamily. Because I'd okay. say what we learned from those first few projects is that we were able to do development wise projects that were more complicated than many other developers were willing to undertake for better and for worse. So we were mm -hmm. you know, gluttons for punishment on that aspect, but it just, it meant that um, other people looked at buildings or looked at zoning codes and thought, I'm not willing to do that. I'm not willing to take that kind of risk. And partly because we didn't have the luxury of not, of not doing deals um, and the luxury of like trying to do the same thing as everyone else, we just you know, rolled up our sleeves and, and tried to figure it out. So that's 
kind of, I'd say where we hit our stride in 2014, 15, 16 is probably like when we hit our stride on what we were yeah. um, relatively good at, which was um, the uh, suburban ground up development. Okay. Um, and then as deals came along um, and we were in the market, we, we, we picked up uh, we picked up buildings as as they made sense. But that was our that was the thing that uh, we were good at. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I was about to ask what your ideal project was. And, mm. and you kind of mentioned it, you know, um, tougher ground up these yep. historic renovations. You started out with a 250,000 square foot office renovation. I mean, that's it's pretty bold. So, yeah, uh, I guess what other than obviously the, the scale of, of that larger building, but what made these projects more difficult to tackle? Was it entitlement risk or, or were there certain things that made these projects sure. tougher? Well, um, I'd say not, not, not to jump the gun on talking about uh, placemaking, but I would sure. say that um, in a lot of these different um, areas, so let's say in, in, in neighborhoods that, are, that would be considered NIMBY-ish, um, or that have like pretty high barriers where there's multiple levels of approvals to go through and different things. And they have local historic ordinances and things like that. Mm -hmm. I'd say that the biggest challenge, most developers shy away from them because they see um, the number of steps you need to go through in order to get something approved. And what, and, and what development likes most is uh, certainty. They can deal with like complexity, but uncertainty is the most difficult thing. So I'd say <laughs> that like historic like that. tax credit renovations, um, I suppose the uncertainty of whether you'd get the, the tax credit might be something, but most people like you'll know if a building is eligible or not. So those are complicated from a construction and development and design perspective. But if you have the right GC and if you have the right architect, you can probably get that one through. Um, suburban approvals. Um, and, and, and obviously there are certain urban neighborhoods where this is true also um, have a different sort of flavor in that the risk is kind of like, one or zero, right? You're either going to get it or you're not, and that's and it's very difficult to um, to underwrite that. Um, so I'd say that's kind of what 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 drew us to that is that we had done a few projects, and we'd done one specifically in 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 this area, and it I don't want to say bought us some credibility, but that enabled us that when we were talking to other people in the neighborhood from that specific um, in that specific neighborhood or ones outside, we could point to these projects and say, this is what we mean by doing a good job or doing these kinds of projects. And so it, it, it burnished those credentials a bit. Um, and not that, you know, they laid out the red carpet for us, but that we felt confident because of the relationship that had been built by what we had already done, that we could eventually get through. Um, so I'd say that's why we were willing um, to do those jobs because through those other hard projects, we had developed a relationship with, you know, town. That, Again, we, I'm sure we'll get into this more later, but like yeah. uh, most people don't realize like how much like uh, the township zoning officer and solicitor and like the uh, traffic engineer who's usually hired by a third party like group that you can work with on other jobs and like those yeah. people really drive the process. Um, and so like working with them and solving problems with them like uh, creatively and being a good partner to those folks really buys you like a lot of, um, I don't want to say leeway. But yeah. it's something like that. It's like you have relational, you, you, you have like a relationship, you have relational capital, right? right. And, and, you can, and you can ask them directly questions like, hey, tell me straight, like, 
is this thing that I want, is this reasonable? Or help me craft this in such a way that we can both create, like collectively like, get this project done. So yeah. um, that's, I'd say how, how we got into those is because we're able to have a pretty good relationship with those folks who um, rarely make the headlines. And yet mm -hmm. um, I'd say end up making functional policy as much as almost anyone else on the projects that get done on the ground. Oh yeah, yeah, that's, that's a great point. Um, you, you know, I talked to John Anderson doing a lot of South Dallas work and, you know, very focused on one high, uh, one area. Uh, we talked about John Marsh earlier. He's focused yeah. on one area, yeah. you know, you know, and we always talk about building credibility with the, the folks around the area, the, the people in the area, the citizens, but you brought up another good point about bringing up and you know really building those relationships with the policymakers the ones mm -hmm. on you know the city councils the the planning commissions the all the governing bodies and you know even the, the the review engineer like you said yes just exactly you know building that social capital up to where you can make these requests and even if they're busy they'll they'll respond and and that's oh, huge. Yeah. So that is huge. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Getting to the point where you can know the guy and say, like, hey, whatever the guy's name is, hey, John, like, shoot to me straight. Like, can you take a look at this and just like tell me if I'm headed in the right direction? I know you can't give me an official response for a while, but just like let me know if this is going to be like a red flag. And again, if you have like relational capital and you're known to be like a reasonable person, they'll usually accommodate that and say, like, this looks good. I don't think we'll have any issues. I'm sure yeah. I'll have comments, but like you can stay on track. And like that's that's huge. Um, I also think that a lot of developers tend to maybe try and overshoot, right? They try to say like, we want to go to city council to like force like the solicitor or the engineer or whoever to like see it this way. Like mm -hmm. often I think it's way better to try yeah. and work with those people first. Cause if there's one thing those guys don't like, it's like, they don't like getting told by like city council that they have to do this and they have to do that. Oh, yeah. It's like, Good luck, right? You can win that. You can win the battle, and lose the war. It's like, all right. Yeah. Good luck having them, you know, uh, <laughs> come up. You're going to need changes at some point, like in the job. Oh, yeah. Like you're going to need some relief. It's like, I need to move my uh, electrical room. It's like, well, I guess we'll get to it when we do, right? Yeah, Rather yeah. than someone who's like on your team. I love this because, like, yeah, I really haven't had this discussion on the show yet. I at least that interaction but it's so important and we were talking about it you know it's important for me from an engineering standpoint to to have this relationship but i think ultimately for or for a developer uh it may be even more important because you know if if they like you <laughs> you can go a lot further than um and, and like you said going going above their heads uh yeah, you, you may win the battle, but you'll lose the war if you ever want to do anything else in that city. You know? Exactly. It's, it's exactly. Uh, that's exactly. no. This, this is a great point. Well, and and the other thing is a lot of those a lot of those civil servants have significantly longer tenure than almost. I mean, there are some cities are different. These have significantly longer tenure than most politicians. Um, so I mean, and yeah, I um, well, I have the utmost respect um, for those folks. I think they generally do want to. Um, see their communities be better. Um, and sometimes there are rules that they enforce that feel unfair, whether it's 
you can only use these materials or it has to be this sort of facade or you have to go through these different like process that might feel unfair. But I think that um, at the end of the day, there is almost nothing to be gained by antagonizing. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, oh, yeah. and, and, and that's another thing I think that's, that's important about whether it's placemaking or community or development. It's like, understand that like, um, it's not, you know, just your project and just your tenants. Um, and uh, one, one separate note. Uh, so when you're going through approvals, I guess advice to anyone who's going through uh, approvals, um, the last thing you should ever cite for like why a township should approve your project is uh, referencing how much you're going to pay in real estate taxes for your new project. Like no one ever wants to hear that. And developers always say it as if it's like some source of pride. It's right. like that wins zero people. Like, <laughs> don't say it. It's true. Just don't say it. You know how many times I've heard that too. I know. I just, I know. <laughs> that's that's funny. That's a comedy sketch right there. Uh, it it's it's true. It's uh, yeah, and they don't. They don't. Um, and I've heard several that say, "Well, do I need to talk to the mayor?" It's like that's that's barely ever, unless you have a really good relationship with the mayor. That will never get you issue. <laughs> Right, right, right. Uh, good, good. Well, let, let's come back a little bit. Uh, sure. That was a great sidetrack. I liked it. Yep. Uh, but how do you balance the risk reward for some of these tougher projects um, sure. with, with your own ideology? And I think you kind yep. of mentioned a little bit already. But. Yep. Well, um, I'd say that it part of it comes down to the golden rule, right? The person with the gold makes the rules. Um, and when you're a developer, unless you're doing it with your own money, then you're doing the projects that you can credibly raise money for. Mm -hmm. um, so um, development is always going to be higher return um, and higher risk. So perhaps you can you have relationships or you've, you've done a few projects in order to establish you can get that done. Um, and uh, perhaps you you haven't. Again, for better and for worse, I think uh, uh, people, uh, developers and GPs have done a terrific job doing, doing both. So I think one, it's knowing like, if you wanna go into development, you have to have access to a certain kind of capital, um, which is that capital that um, is okay, either buying unentitled or close to unentitled land, very risky. Mm -hmm. um, and um, how, how else I think I do it. And then I'd also say that it comes from smartly knowing um, where you could and, and shouldn't where you where you should and shouldn't take risks. I mean, um, mm -hmm. things definitely did not go all well in all different projects. We've, we've done several that in pre-development um, uh, lost quite a bit of money. Um, uh, just because that was just sort of the nature, like you, you, are, you are taking a gamble. So you have to uh, be aware of that and either uh, raise for that or have, or have built up enough fees that you can uh, sustain those kinds of losses um, or have relationships with um, third parties that are willing to kind of um, uh, go with you at risk. So I think right. um, going for those kinds of projects, you need um, a certain kind of skill and you need, um, I think in the, the particular limiting thing is a certain kind of like financial ability. I mean, like um, the guarantees on a, a ground up construction loan and, and a historic tax credit loan or even more um, <laughs> because you have to guarantee the tax credit um, separately. Um, hmm are very different than what you would do on, on a stabilized or, or on a value ideal, which are, there's 
really not much to financially guarantee, but on a, you know, on a, on a large scale development, even if you got it under contract, if you don't have the money, like you couldn't close a loan. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you couldn't get it done. So if you spent money there and you can't close the loan, then it means you know, you're, you're betting on someone else coming in with you to co-GP it with you, or you're betting on being able to sell it. So right. maybe that, maybe you time it well, maybe you don't. So I think that's the main um, thing that I would caution people to think about as they're going through um, or thinking about those, those kinds of projects mm-hmm. um, in, uh, in, in, in thinking about heavy development or you know, a, a more typical um, cosmetic uh, value add of, of a stabilized asset. Right, right, no, that makes sense. Um, you know, you, you mentioned just having the financial <laughs> firepower to weather the storms if, if, if it is, if it does come down to it and mm-hmm. uh, be willing to take those risks. I, I yes. mean, like you said, it, it comes down to how much uh, financial backup you do have, and yep, that's perfect. Um, I, I'd also say I'd also say that I think that that is a a part of the market, and kind of fast forward something that I'm doing a little bit of now. <clears throat> so I invest in some other people's projects now, um, among among doing among working on some of my own. But mm-hmm. um, I'd say one part of that of the market that is uh, of the capital market that is. Um, not efficiently priced from a capital perspective, I do think is is those different pursuit dollars. Because I've seen, and again, I, I know this from what I've done, I've seen other developers, too many folks because they, in an appropriate risk reward analysis, you should lose or take some risks in pre-development that don't pay off, right? Mm-hmm. Either you try to tie up some land and maybe go for like a big rezoning and you don't get it and you move on, or um, uh, you tie up the land and, um, spend some money in some exploratory ways that, that doesn't always work out right. And I'd say that grounded developers tend to be too married to the different projects because they don't have the capital to take some of the different risks, so they have to make it work. Um, so I'd say like, if you bat a thousand on, um, on buying a project entitled and going forward, it in the kind of like general like equilibrium would say like that you haven't taken the appropriate risks um, uh, you, but you could have taken more risk. Now, again, I'm not trying to flush anyone's money down the toilet. I'm just saying like, that's what an efficient market would be is that like something happened. So I think that there was a market um, for people who understand development risk and um, market timing uh, to invest in that particular slice with other developers. So I've been doing a little bit of that on my own. I think okay. it'd be a really interesting thing to do. I know that other people within real estate Twitter have like been throwing around like how they could make that work. Like yeah. someone vetting deals that other people could money into early because the pre-development is um, risky and expensive. So all that to say, I think I think that's a really exciting thing that could happen. Maybe even um, through Twitter or through uh, like decentralized funding, it is something that at the moment is not really fundable at all at the moment. It's right. just people taking risk with their own money um, or um, private lending, which is um, yeah. basically just balance sheet lending. So it's not really it's not really underwriting the deal. It's underwriting like I'll lend you money. Um, yeah, I'll just lend you money based on what else you have or something like right, that. So, right. yeah. 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 No, it's, it's cool. I've, I've, I've seen a little bit of uh, kind of that crowd essentially 
this is a little different than what you're saying, but that crowdfunding for development. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I'm, I'm Eve Pickers is working on that with uh, her site. And it, it seems like it's working. She's just having some troubles, up, but it's just tough to get through the, the, the red tape of, of uh, you know, the financial world. So certainly is. I think she's having hard. her troubles there, but, you know, she's, she's made a few works. So hopefully that keeps going and it might give more opportunity to make development a little more equitable. Um, yep. For the rest of us. Yep. So, yeah, cool. Uh, so I guess when you start out, kind of mm -hmm. let's, let's go high level workflow yep. for, I guess, due diligence through uh, starting initial due diligence through um, putting a shovel in the ground, essentially. Yeah. What does that look like for your group? Well, let's talk about the, um, the suburban entitlement process. This, this, yeah. would, this would apply to the urban one too, but again, I just have, I've had a few more reps of the complicated sure. one um, within the suburban side. So this would generally apply to the urban one too, I'd say. Um, A lot of that due diligence um, occurs prior to putting anything under agreement, mm -hmm. right? Because um, you're gonna need to know like, what can I build? Where can I generally get relief on things like that? If you parachute into a certain place, it's like, buy it. And then you try and figure it out later. Um, that's, uh, I suppose you could always try and retrade later with the seller, but um, it's not really good business practice. And right. I'm not sure how successful that would be. So mainly I'd say, the bulk of what you're going to do is going to be to um, figure out, like, I believe that I can build about this size of building and think and, and given the um, uh, the max height um, and, and the parking ratios, this is the construction type that I'm generally going to be building. Right. So in the suburbs, you're going to say, like, all right, wait, I have to build like four over one, five over two, um, depending on my this is this is the size of the building I can build, you know, two FAR, two and a half FAR, whatever it is right. like the model is going to be relatively straightforward because you've hopefully done enough projects that you know generally what can cost or you can ask you know your last gc this is what i want to build what is this 165 a foot plus this for the garage or whatever so yeah that's your model your model should be pretty tight the other thing i'd say is that on those particular deals the um the land doesn't affect the um not that you should pay anything for the land but that doesn't move the needle on the overall deal as much as some of the other larger terms. Mm -hmm. um, so that's why most developers will pay for time, right? right. So like paying 5% uh, more on the land um, to get an extra 18 months um, can de-risk the job uh, quite a bit. Sure. Um, so I'd say once you get into, once you get into uh, due diligence, to me, the main thing that you really wanna do is, um, Ideally, it, to me, it comes down to different stages of financing. Uh, the financing that wraps up projects entirely is a construction loan. And, and in order to close a construction loan, you need, um, you need to sort of work backwards. To close a construction loan, you need a building permit um, and a GMP. Mm -hmm. In order to have both of those two things, you need to have full CDs. And in order to have full CDs, you need to know like the full engineering of where that's going to go. So working backwards, like that's like the time that it takes, plus like all the money that it takes to get there. Until right. you get to that point where you have like um, a GMP and the building permit, a bank 
you may have a, a signed agreement with a bank, but like they have no obligation to fund. I mean, and you have to raise the money and you have to raise the equity, but those two things from the project perspective is what you have to do. So I mainly say like, we start with that and how quickly can we get there? Mm-hmm. And the big thing is going to be is during the due diligence time, can I get to that stage? If not, then it means either you're closing on the land with equity mm-hmm. or you're closing on the land with, you know, a, um, a low leverage, um, a low leverage land loan. So that's the mm-hmm. big divide um, in projects is how much time you're going to get. And if you aren't going to get enough time to finish all those approvals, then it doesn't matter that much uh, the difference between like whether you have um, uh, your architecturals 65% done or 20% done. Right. Now, then the other thing where it does really matter is, um, which to me is all about speed in that first part is, if you are putting in an offer for raw land, the most important thing you can do is to basically give every penny you have to your civil engineer. I don't want to say ignore your architect, but just enough to them and basically try and drive through to get like the density and like the general meets and bounds and the understanding of the density of the project as fast as possible. Right. Because that's something that fundamentally changes like the asset in what the bank can lend against. Because now instead of two acres, it's now, you know, um, a building of size this parking lot like this and this many units and that's like a different kind of security that you can get a loan against you could even sell that if you wanted to so right. i'd say like in that initial thing i'd encourage especially all newer developers spend money on your civil engineer and like your zoning attorney but like be there be generous with them and be stingy with everybody else because those things don't matter until you after get that first piece <laughs> I didn't pay you to say this, by the way. <laughs> Just for the record, I didn't leave it. <laughs> it's true. It's true. It's true. Uh, no, no, I, I, no. You know, like you, you said, having those entitlements up front, uh, and, and I, this reminded me of something that Sean Sweeney had said that, you know, you have to have, you want to get your ESA Phase One, your Geotech, yep. all your reports. Yep. before you know you even move forward with anything really you know yep. and uh no that's that's perfectly true that's um a, and it might save you a little little money and headache further down the line if you can get oh, that totally yeah absolutely right yes like it's it's all of it's all of those things first and it's the fancy things later um <laughs> the pretty now, things. now again like where it's a little bit different once you're good and you and you know you have the financial capabilities and the deal like works and you know you're going to do it through then you can kind of do everything all at the same time and you're probably going to be fundraising um a little bit earlier so it is easier to fundraise with like pretty pictures and right. some and some architecturals and stuff like that so uh i guess the difficulty is that a very large developer won't follow that rule but anyone who's like early should uh yeah spend all your money on like you said, like those reports that are necessary in order to close a loan, right? Phase one, geotech, and mm-hmm. things that are necessary to like place the initial building with with the civil, alpha, whatever, obviously. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> let's let's talk about the the fancy things, the pretty pictures, <laughs> sure. the architecture. So yep. on on Twitter, you're you're very vocal about your. I don't. Fascination, admiration, sure. With uh, floor plan strategies, yep. sure. Um, you know, maybe it's an obsession. I don't know. Sure, it is. I'll, I'll well, let you. <laughs> I'll let you describe that. Well, to, to, 
So obviously there's lots of different ways that I can talk about, but I'll, I'll keep talking about it within the context that we're discussing, which is like zoning and approvals and civil. I'd say like um, the first way that you need to think about floor plans at Unimix is in regards to um, zoning entitlements, right? One thing that, again, developers know, but maybe other people don't know as much is every single, there might be similar, but every single municipal zoning code is different mm -hmm. in terms of like parking, right? In terms of the type of parking they allowed, in terms of how many spaces you can do in a row without having like a median, in terms of like whether they require like a bailout lane for a drive-through, whether um, this thing is a conditional use or a like by right use, there's lots of different things. And the parking requirements by unit type um, do tend to have um, similarity between different um, suburbs, mm -hmm. but um, they're, uh... anyway, it's, that's, that to me is like where floor plans start, right? Like mm -hmm. you start with, you see the certain, you, 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 you see the rules and then you're gonna design units um, given those restrictions in order to minimize the amount of parking that you need to build um, in order to fill the building as best as best as you can while hitting like your rent per square foot. So like that to me is kind of like where it started. Like, so in the first area where we were building, um, they had the same um, parking count per unit required, regardless of the uh, unit type, which definitely meant that you did not want to build a studio, a 400 square foot studio. You wanted to build like as large a unit as you possibly could mm -hmm. in order to uh, comply with the zoning. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, no, that's a good point. And um, that's, that's something that is a little misunderstood, I think. But, you know, <laughs> I love, so I'm, I'm very mathematical myself and mm -hmm. you with uh, your, your background as well, I'm sure. But it's funny because I always try to think of things in variables and you're, you're plugging in these different variables essentially in your brain about, okay, what's the the square foot of rent what's yep. how much parking am i gonna have how much space does this take yep and then how much rent can i get yep and all these different variables yep to come well, up and with <laughs> and and that and that and that's where like so a lot of the work that i do and have done within floor plans has been like how do we quantify unit types mm -hmm. right um and uses within different unit types so um if you look in like the uh uh, the the parking requirements of I don't know ninety nine percent of zoning codes they have um, may might change a different uh, it, it might be a different um, number of parking spots required by unit type but mm -hmm. for units it's almost always number per unit right mm -hmm. like parking spaces per this number of units right might be different for studios or three bedrooms but it's always that every other use is parking spaces per square foot mm -hmm. I have not seen a zoning code where um, it's um, parking spaces per by like residential square foot. So that necessarily is going to have like a really big like drive if you're thinking about your floor plans and like your types in the right way. So it's where like if you were to design, and again, I go over specifically like a lot on stuff of like how inside of the suburb, like a 1200 square foot unit, um, what's the difference between a two bedroom den and a three bedroom, right? It might look exactly the same. You could even call it the same, right? It might, every every aspect of might be identical, but there are some areas we're calling that a two bedroom den means you have different parking requirements, something that's three bedroom. And right. also like the way that someone's gonna use that in real life is probably also the same. 
if right. again it's a 1200 square foot three bedroom there aren't that many people in new construction given the kinds of rents you need to charge who are going to be using those all three bedrooms the same way that you would use it like i don't know, like a, a 2200 square foot like three bedroom townhome or something like that so sure. that's where i think that like thinking through like who is my target renter like how large is it how are these units actually going to be used can enable you to credibly like call it one thing versus something else like you can call it a three to one person you can call it a two-bedroom den to someone else you're not lying to anyone it's just a matter <laughs> of like perspective right. um so i think like knowing that and 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 as i've also I, as i mentioned a little bit with chris and as i try to sound uh, or i guess talk about a lot on twitter is like i think that it's really narrowing in on like apartments as a product like who is this for mm -hmm. i like i'm building this for whom and, and I think that just like guides a lot of different development decisions um, a lot better. For and, your, your yeah. end user, right? So who, yes, who are yes, your designers? Exactly. exactly, exactly, exactly. And that's, and I've, I've discussed this with others too, and it's just like not enough thought is off. I'm not gonna say blanket rule, but it's generally thought about the end user when it comes to Primarily residential, but even even retail to some degree. I mean, it's yep. it's it's a it's a common problem, and you know, you, I I think what you're doing is adding another variable essentially to this this equation. And uh, you know, we talked about this before the show a little bit, but playing within the rules, but yeah. coming up with creative ways to get the best product or get the best solution yep. within that framework, within those requirements. Um, so I think that's really interesting that, that you kind Thanks. of spelled it out that way. Uh, so let's kind of, let's transition this into the term placemaking. Sure. Uh, I love to hear what people say. Mm -hmm. and, and there's tons of different definitions that people come up with this. And, I just like to hear yours and then we can kind of build off of that. You know, I'm not sure I have a strict definition. I think yeah. um, it's something that I, like most people, like I know it when I see it, uh -huh. like I know when I feel it. So like there are projects that I can point to and or things that I can say and like, this is clearly placemaking and, or there are neighborhoods in certain times of development that's like, this is clearly done the right way. But I think that like, so I'd say the thing that about good placemaking that is important is like, it has to come from like good intention. I remember reading, there was this, um, there's this book called um, Leadership and Self-Deception. And it talks about like relating to people. And it says like, step one, um, before you like um, uh, do any like tricks or techniques in like getting people to like you, you have to like genuinely care about them first. Right. And I think that to me, like placemaking comes at the same time. I don't think that someone can come in and say like, I have this program, I'm going to run it here. To me, regardless of the of how beautiful that project is, I wouldn't personally count that as placemaking. Um, I would, that can be incredible um, business acumen and you can execute it. But to me, placemaking has to come from uh, the soul of saying like, I care about you, about this particular place. I may not be from here, but I want to do best genuinely by that place with within the limits of the restrictions that I have. It can't be, right. um, you know, there's obviously financial limitations, but um, I think it has to come from that intentionality of caring. Right. 
Right. And I've heard some describe it as it's almost divine, <laughs> like a divine mm, intervention. What? You can't yeah. put your finger on it. But yep. when it's there, it's just like, wow. You know, yep. it's, uh, it's hard to describe. Like you said, it's almost, a, it's just a, you, you feel it. And you do. Um, right, exactly. I mean, you you go and you 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 visit like Opelika, Alabama, which is where John Marsh works, and it it is you could just you could just tell like that's what it is. I don't know exactly how to describe define it, but there's that, and you know, um, uh, yeah, other other projects too. But you, yeah. you you know when you can feel it, right? So so how do you how do you try to implement that into sure. your your different developments when it's difficult to control everything around the project but you can control you know at, le- at least up to your project and within your project so how, yeah. how do you, how do you try to how does that show in your projects well that's something that it's definitely um i've matured or changed a lot in that in my career um I'd say at first I thought a lot about um, the culture of the building um, itself, right? You think about, well, I'm going to have certain kinds of amenities. So I guess sort of starting with that first urban project, we're going to have certain kinds of um, retail tenants and we want these retail tenants to signal to the right kind of people. It's like, you know, you want to walk into, I think, you know, we had maybe other retail tenants who could come in, but like, oh, theory is the kind of brand we have to be associated with, or like it was, you know, a nice bank. So great. Like this is a nice bank. So rather Mm -hmm. than, I don't know, something else. So there's that association Now, urban is a little bit different in that a lot of the placemaking is is already established, at least in the projects I did, because it was so urban, it was, you know, Rittenhouse Square, it's not going to change that much based on what what we build into it. Right. Um, So there's, so there's, there's that aspect. And I, so again, it started by thinking about the amenities, right? Like how do amenities play with the rest of the different people? And then I'd say the thing that really changed um, um, the next step that I made was thinking about how um, tenants interacted with each other. The first one was mainly like that the amenities would make sense for each person individually. Like I'm still renting an apartment to this person. Mm-hmm. They fit this demographic profile. And so we have these amenities to attract them. So I'm renting, you know, unit 801 to this kind of a person. We want everything to be holistic. And mm-hmm. then frankly, like as my wife and I lived in, in, in 16, 16 Walnut for eight years after we, seven years after we sold the building, yeah. um, we sort of realized something which we kind of already knew, which is that like, um, my wife's very hospitable. And so we had you know, 12 units on our floor and we had the largest one and we had, and we eventually had a few different kids and they'd, and they'd make noise or whatever. Right. So whenever someone would come over, we'd always say like, Hey, look, we want to invite them over and say like, if our kids get rowdy, please let us know. And just try to be friends with them as much as possible. Right. I am certain that we improve people's lives just by being kind to them. And I don't mean this to, 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 to pat ourselves in the back, but more to say like that, that thing isn't captured within a pro forma, but mm-hmm. it's real, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, so there are some management companies that try to um, encourage that through wine Functions on Wednesdays or, or this sort yeah. of stuff. Like, but mm-hmm. like, it, it needs to be something that's a lot deeper than that. So it's like that's the next sort of like level that I took to understand. It's like, okay, how could we maybe try and do things that would encourage interaction, which is going to be like a much stronger um, community bond. Mm-hmm. And then as we got into um, suburban development. You necessarily think about like how does this building fit in with everything else? 
And I'd say that the downside that I initially thought of that was, and this, this is, I think, because I was being put through my paces by some very, um, um, by certain kinds of local neighborhood groups tend to focus a lot more on the appearance of a building. Sure. Which is why a lot of those like pretty pictures really do matter, right? You're going to show them something that looks really nice. They will rarely have ever look at the floor plans or think about that stuff. Oh, no. They might <laughs> say, how many two bedrooms are there? Because we don't want the, we don't want the schools overcrowded with kids and that sort of stuff. But generally new construction, you're not going to have that many kids based on the unit size that you're doing. It does happen, but um, they're usually really focused on the exterior. And I was as well. And then the next thing that developers end up being focused on again, which I, I did up, up, up until even a few years ago, was thinking like, all right, if I'm going to think about how this building fits in with the rest of the building, I want to think about like mixed use, right? So I ended up designing, getting some variances on a few of our projects, say like, let's put in like a food hall. Let's put in mm -hmm. like this large, like um, two-story, like um, a two-story space to make it feel a little more grand. Let's pull the building back for a little bit from like this public square to think about like how the building interacts with some public spaces. Mm -hmm. um, and I don't think that's wrong. Um, and I think even up to that point, I was mainly thinking of the um, the residential is like almost like, I don't say passive, but that mixed use creates value and then residential um, takes advantage of things that are like created by sure. uh, one store retail, good shops, like um, bright lights, um, good mm -hmm. street parking or, or things like that. And so I think where I've eventually uh, matured to thinking about is thinking about how um, floor plans make communities. And where I can see it most is in the negative. Um, there are um, new neighborhoods going up where basically everyone is developing by the same rubric. Mm -hmm. So you have in 10,000 units going up and somewhere like in Dallas, in certain areas, there's gonna be say like uptown in Dallas, most of the units fit like the same thing. There's a whole lot of these one bedrooms, a lot of these different, a lot of these different like two bedrooms. There's not a lot of like overall community of this thing, uh, of this um, more fleshed out type community. So that to me, um, and where I think about floor plan data and when I think about like unit type data is like, that's um, what I would like to continue to research and advocate for and think about is like, and I also frankly think it's good business because uh -huh. um, if people are building, you know, 8,000 of the certain type of one bedroom, uh, it's probably not good business to build the same one of that, right? Like, mm -hmm. You'd probably just be better off by building something, not that. Yeah. Um, so I think it's good business, but I also think like that it's more sustainable of saying like, great, let's assume, because it's probably going to be a case that like most large scale projects and um, developments within Dallas-Fort Worth or Phoenix or these like, or Denver, these high growth areas is going to work. So then what's this community going to look like in three years, right? Uh -huh. um, and so that that's like the way the thing I personally um, matured into thinking about. It's absolutely necessary to also think about the mixed use stuff. I don't have the background into that to like really be the person who pushes that forward. That's mm -hmm. going to, I think, be through other developers who know how like hospitality and food service like really work. So I think it's curate. for those people it's, to yeah. push that. The one that I can think about is like, is, is think about as floor plans. And I think I can think about and describe that about as well as anyone else. Um, yeah. So that, that'll be my, my mark, I think. And other people like John or whoever else will, will talk about uh, those other ones. Yeah. So, you know, we're, you know, you, you've got the mathematical background hmm. and quantifiable data is, is tough. How do you quantify? Yep experience, I guess. 
I mean, which how do how can you create a unit mix that creates more community within a in an area? And I, I know you can't really quantify it from a, a numbers standpoint, sure. but um, what what types of things do you see that do create that value? Um, so that to me is, I think, where um, unit type diversity, particularly in larger things and for families, is to me, I think, where it's a big difference. And again, I can, it's it's difficult to see like what it should be ideally. Mm -hmm. um, I think it's easier to see when it kind of goes the other direction. So, mm -hmm. um, you know, my wife and I rented a house in San Francisco for a summer and went to um, a 4th of July party um, with our two kids at the time. There were... Um, and at this party um, in Golden Gate Park. And we lived in, we lived in um, 19th and Balboa, beautiful, okay. beautiful part of the city, yeah. right in between the Presidio and Golden Gate Park. Um, at this 4th of July party, there were eight bouncy castles and our children were the only children there out of like thousands of people. <laughs> and I remember my, my son who was, I don't know, a few years old, was just like baffled when we were just like, uh, those are not for kids. Yeah. Um, because it was, you know, shenanigans and all that, all that sort of yeah. stuff. Um, and so I think like uh, nothing against San Francisco. I think it's, I think it's a terrific city. Um, and I think it has every advantage um, weather-wise and oh, yeah. economy and that sort of stuff. Um, but even people who live there will acknowledge like that there needs to be um, demographic diver diversity and like age diversity within that. I mean, it's, you can see it in all kinds of different groups, whether it's like churches, or um, other sorts of different community organizations. Like it can't all be everyone within the same cohort or it becomes um, necessary that when people get to a certain life stage, they'll leave. So mm -hmm. I think at a minimum, what's really important is to have those units there. Plenty of people are gonna choose to leave um, because people move more than usual. But I think just having those units um, that are gonna be larger, will have like just a few families, I think enables people to think it's possible for me to stay. Mm -hmm. And then they aren't always going into that area saying, I'm here to live in the city and then I'm gonna leave. Mm -hmm. And I think that's that's what causes a lot of friction, like I said, within um, within churches or within different sort of subsets of communities. Like people know even within New York, you go and you live in this part of the city when you're single, you live in this part of the city <laughs> when you have like a significant other. And then when you have kids, you move to the Upper West Side, you move to Brooklyn, right? Like right. I, it, it would be different. And and, and the makeups of the different would be different if, it were, if there was a little bit more, um, unit typology mix um, okay. within those individual neighborhoods for, for better and for worse. And that, that may not work for New York, um, but that is where I see the um, opportunity um, within, especially some of these uh, greenfield developments. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that, that actually makes a lot of sense that um, makes the having that unit diversity, you might have some families who are usually a less transient group when yeah. there's, a, there's a family unit. So, uh, you know, maybe having some more options for that might, might yep. create a little more stability. Um, well, and also, you know, again, not, not to get into the floor plan layout stuff too much, yeah. but I would say like um, the way that a three bedroom uh, floor plan is going to be laid out, that's uh, highest and best use for a family versus a three bedroom layout that's best for like three roommates are vastly different. And so as long as, yeah. as long as you build a unit that's like primarily like for three, um, for three roommates and then say like, well, let's just have the family move in there. Um, 
the family's not going to compete with that because it's always going to make more sense for people to split the rent three ways and 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 bid it up, which is why you know um, uh, two bedrooms in two bedrooms in San Francisco are six grand, right? Um, it, it, it again, it's, it's people sharing, which is just slightly less expensive than than getting something on your own. So it need it would need to be something different, right? Smaller mm-hmm. built-in bunk beds. I'm not sure, but like as you've seen different families who who make things work in the city, then I, I think it's through those. Um, uh, odd shaped or smaller, more efficient or different type of different type of, uh, of flip and layouts. So I think like mm-hmm. looking at overall community and saying like, it seems like that there's not as much of this where I think that's very difficult within the data. So I'll, I'll agree that this part is hard is um, you have to, to some degree you have to anticipate that that is what's needed, even though the data will not necessarily show that it's there. You just have to believe that that it is. Where that's a little bit easier for me to jump over the hurdle is that um, given how I have worked in in some of these um, higher barrier suburban areas, that's something you always just have to get over right away. Because in areas where stuff has not been built for a long time, you can't look at the existing information. You're just going to say like, there's high meeting income, there's good schools, I know people are going to pay rents. It doesn't mm-hmm. matter that the existing product is like old and bad, like that doesn't hold my rents down. This is something that's just like a different product for a different kind of person. So I think you need to make similar jumps. And that's one of the things that I've been trying to promote. And frankly, I've, I've had so much fun working on this through Twitter of just like consulting or talking to other people's projects of saying like, here's what I think you should do with your units because here's what's, here's what's everyone else is building. So mm-hmm. at a minimum, let's build something a little bit different and let's try and like flesh out this, um, uh, these floor plan um, uh, types uh, holistically a little bit more. So, but it, it's it's in the very early stages. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, and my next question is, what yep. what keeps you up at night? And I, I sure. think uh, <laughs> I think that might be part of it. You're you're busy drawing in your mind right now, but. Um, I am. I am. I'd say that the thing that um, gets me the most excited is, um, and yeah, I know we've talked a little before, we can maybe talk a little about the effect of Twitter, which I think has been so neat in terms of the way that there's like knowledge share and mm-hmm. um, the people involved is absolutely incredible. I, I, I wish that I had had access to that early in my career. Um, but now that I know a little bit what I'm doing, I I, I enjoy being able to answer other people's questions. Mm-hmm. But I would say the thing that isn't really neat about real estate Twitter has been seeing the degree to which um, ideas that I have or ideas that other people have um, have the potential to influence other people. I mean, I've I've gotten um, I, I've now gotten to work on um, the floor plans of for other people for um, two thousand units, which is more more than I've built in my entire career. So yeah. in the last like four months on Twitter, I've um, had a hand in um redesigning or commenting on um uh, more units than i've ever done uh in my career to date just just through social media just because people saying like hey bobby um uh, these are my floor plans can you tell me what you think they're gonna rent for can you tell me like based on the other units in the area like how they should how they should change and so that's been just really cool really (laughs) cool to see that the power of that kind of impact i mean generally development is not something that scales right um quite to that degree and so it turns out that you know, my, I guess my opinions about it can, some people are taking them, some people aren't, but either way, yeah. I'm offering them and yeah. it's been uh, fun to do. Well, and what I found from uh, my limited use in Twitter 
until more recently is just the the ability to share your information freely yeah. it comes back tenfold you know with the it does either helping helping somebody out you know holistically if you feel a little bit better and, uh, or just you know you you meet people that like yourself that uh, are are you know advanced in their career just a little bit further and they're able to provide some feedback and uh, yeah. it's a it's a really cool space so that's that's what's keeping you up at night right now essentially yeah i mean pretty good I, right now no actually well i mean no it's not not the subject of this thing but i would say um being transparent i would say this is actually one of the more um stressful um times in my career over the last few months um twitter is obviously good but there's just been um it's a it's a it's very stressful sure. um it, i don't mean that in it's not all bad but there's there's a lot of things to do and i i feel behind on a lot of different people and so um if there is one thing that does keep me going it's that um i feel that the the task is worthy mm -hmm. right um it's uh i i see a lot of floor plans i think a lot of them aren't good um and i want them to be better and i want them to change um with intentionality um so i i do i do feel burdened to do that right. um and i'm and i also feel burdened to try to do that in a way that's also good for my family mm -hmm. um so that that sure. and then yeah yeah we all we all have 24 hours you know we, we all do. have priorities so we do uh, just align your priorities and it, it is tough though it is um and that that kind of brings me to my my last true question here is you know if we were to to google your name or I said wikipedia might not last but in a hundred years you know what what uh what would it say about you and and form developers and um, yeah. kind of the legacy that that you you would like to have shown i think legacy is the right word there i mean uh for a long time in my career i've i've thought that um if there's anything on my epitaph that comes for um husband father church member community member anything comes before those things like i'll consider my life to go to waste um so uh, that being said i have i have i have significant ambitions on what, on, what, on what i want to accomplish but i always put those things kind of in um, uh, and then the other one i and and um so i'd say the so business wise what would i want to have accomplished in 100 years um there's two different ones one um by the end of my career um i want to um start a company um where a thousand people work and pay off their home from a bi-weekly paychecks i think the best mark of success of a company is if people choose to stay um and obviously getting a thousand or five thousand how many people there's there's a, there's a large number that want i i, I think that that's a, a certainly measure of financial success too but to me like that's the main thing that i would want i would want a lot of people to have worked the company that I run um, and have worked there for a very long time. I admire a lot of these different professions, some of these different professional services firms, um, especially within construction, some an architecture tool, like people you go there and, you know, um, the project manager has been there 27 years and 
and mm-hmm. the uh, and, and some of the front desk has been there, you know, 40 years. I, I think like there's just so much that you can tell about people. It's like, well, you've done something right and you've mm-hmm. treated people a certain way. So that's, I'd say that's the other thing that I want to accomplish. And the third one, if there was a realm in which like I, I find myself like um, moving toward it, it would be, and I, I use this term jokingly um, to be like, you know, the Bill James of floor plans. But I would say like, I would want more than anything to be a part of like um, mo- advancing the like narrative I'm not sure whether this is going to be through doing my own projects or through advocating for other people's um, um, advocating for and and changing the way that apartment floor plans, the mindset with which they are laid out and the way in which they and the way in which they are done. Um, so that's wow. um, those are the three things. Those are the three things. <laughs> that's it. That's it. Yep. That's yeah. Yeah, yeah, wow. yeah, exactly. Yeah, you're. You're well on your way. Um, Thank you, Bobby. Uh, I want to give you a minute here just to have, um, just to give a little bit more information about where they can, where uh, listeners can find out more about you and, and your group and form developers and, and yep. what you're doing next. Sure. Well, um, I respond to as many as the DMs as I can. <laughs> um, so if you follow me on Twitter at Bobby Fion, um, I'd Love to interact with you and answer any questions that I have. I'd say the things that I'm most excited right now to work on with other people are that um, if you have another, pro- if you have a ground up project or a heavy value add project you're working on that you want me to look at your floor plans, um, I would love to to do that. Um, it's a part of my business that I'm looking to expand, and I want, I yeah, I I, I want to see that change in the United States. Yeah. All right. Well, I'll, I'll provide a link uh, in the page as well. And I appreciate your time, Bobby. I, I know you're very busy. You got a lot, lot going on. So I appreciate your time and I uh, would love to stay in touch. That'd be great, Matt. All right. Thank you. All right. Thanks a lot. 